1: Erica is only available in the English language. You must download the latest version of the mobile banking app only available on select mobile devices. Your chat may be recorded and monitored for quality assurance. Message and data rates and additional terms may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC.
2: Free Economics Radio is sponsored by FedEx. Small and medium businesses need happy customers. That's why FedEx offers picture-proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday. And over 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.
3: Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the host of Freakonomics Radio, Stephen Dubner.
2: Thank you so much. This week, Freakonomics Radio is being recorded live at the theater at the Ace Hotel in Los Angeles, California. Our show is typically produced in a studio. Tonight, not only do we have the pleasure of working with a live audience, but also... Live music. So, would you please welcome in their worldwide debut the composer behind the music you hear on our show every week, Luis Guerra and the Freakonomics Radio Orchestra. Also joining us tonight as co host, the University of Pennsylvania psychology professor. She's also the author of the great book Grit The Power of Passion and Perseverance. Would you please welcome Angela Duckworth? Angela, hello.
3: Hi, Stephen.
2: I'm dying to know what you're working on that we should all know about.
3: I recently did an eight minute intervention. We asked students to give advice. other students. So we didn't give them money. We didn't give them information. We simply asked them to help other kids. They answered questions about how not to procrastinate, how to stay off their cell phone in eight minutes. And then we followed them for a full marking period. And the students, just by being asked for their advice, got more motivated and did better in school.
2: So just telling other people what they should do with their lives makes you better off?
3: It's kind of, you know, not intuitive because that's, everyone does that like all the time. But in this particular case, the way we ask the questions, yeah.
2: I like it. Angela, as you know, we sometimes play a game during these live shows called Tell Me Something I Don't Know. And what we do is we bring on stage a series of guests from various backgrounds and disciplines and we will ask them to tell us something particularly interesting about their field. You and I will then ask them some questions, and then later on our live audience will pick a winner. The criteria are very simple. Number one, did they tell us something we truly did not know? Number two, was it worth knowing? And number three, was it demonstrably true? And to help with that demonstrably true part, would you please welcome our real-time fact-checker. He is the head of global insights at Qualtrics. He's the co-founder of Five for the Fight, the campaign to eradicate cancer, Mike Maughan. <laughs> hey Mike, uh, first time in LA for us doing the show. You wanna tell us some little known facts about LA? So LA
4: is a unique place. It is illegal to drive more than 2,000 sheep down Hollywood Boulevard. (laughs) Shocking number of people have been arrested for that in the last two centuries. Uh, The LA coroner's office has a gift shop. (laughs) Just weird. And while San Francisco probably wants to own it, LA is regarded as the birthplace of the internet because the first transmission was sent from UCLA up to Menlo Park in 1969. (laughs) Now, unfortunately, this is also
2: the birthplace of the Kardashians and animatronic robots. Win some, lose some. Mike Maughan, thank you so much. Um, I think it's time to get started. Our first guest tonight, would you please welcome? He is your mayor, Eric Garcetti.
5: Welcome to the City of Angels. Great to have you guys here.
2: Mayor Garcetti, we New Yorkers feel that we've got a a pretty accurate picture of um, life in California, especially Southern California. Um, It's basically earthquakes, wildfires, and Kardashians. So I'm just curious, is there anything else going on here generally?
5: Well, we are looking at getting an animatronic Kardashian, so the two things will come together soon. But no, that's pretty much the the full sum of this amazing city that's Very simple place, but I like to call it uh, sort of an imperfect paradise. What, in your view, um, are the imperfect parts that you are most concerned about? I think our biggest challenges are around poverty, housing connected to that, especially homelessness, traffic, um, and transportation. And then I'd say the third thing that we kind of are faced with is trying to figure out how we can um, take our pluralism and make that work Uh, I think we do a pretty darn good job compared to other places. Los Angeles, I like to say it's a place where everybody feels like they belong. A lot of people like diversity and inclusion as words. I think they're less good, you know. The hometown buffet is diverse. Uh, Inclusion (laughs) implies someone's powerful and is including you. But belonging is like a great equalizer. So
2: let's talk about um, transportation a little bit. Most people from not here, like us, when we think about um, LA, um, I think of it as a geographically massive place, which therefore requires a big dependence on cars, which therefore means a lot of congestion. And and then when it comes to public transport, we think of slow buses and not many trains. So tell me
5: where that perception
2: is right and
5: wrong and what you're doing about it. Well, we used to have the the best public transportation system probably in the country, the red car and the yellow cars. We can go through the conspiracies of whether it was the car companies and the oil companies who killed it off. Go through those conspiracies. Well, okay. Speaking of Roger Rabbit... It's mostly not true that there was some conspiracy behind it. We've always been on the cutting edge of transportation, and freeways actually worked for a long time. It was 20 minutes anywhere. We were building the future, kind of the way people talk about autonomous vehicles now, the way they talked about subways before that. We kind of thought for a while, rail cars are so yesterday, let's just get rid of all of them because cars will be here forever. Um, That led to a problem or two. Uh, But we're changing that. I mean, we just passed the largest transportation initiative in American history at the local level. We're going to be building 15 rapid transit lines at once. Today, we're already the third largest light rail line, but it's kind of like winning the lottery today in L.A. Like if you're lucky enough to live on that line and work over there and it might take you, you're like, wow, I won. We want to make that more than five percent, which is kind of what it is today. Second, I think we're solving it by trying to plan better communities. We used to segregate away where we work, where we play, where we live. And now we're trying to build communities where you can actually walk. And third, we're kind of on the cutting edge of technology. We are saying yes to testing things here, whether it is connected cars and autonomous vehicles, whether it's things like Hyperloop or uh, the Boring Company. (laughs) Was that Elon whooping? Yeah, that was Elon Musk. If you look under your seats right now, there's actually a free Tesla key uh, for everybody. You're a winner. You're a winner.
4: I'd like to fact check you are a politician for promising (laughs) something.
3: It's inspiring to listen to you, but if there is one secular trend that is indisputable when you look at generations of young people who grew up in the 60s compared to the 70s and then on up to the millennials, that young people are getting more cynical and less trusting of politicians and political institutions. What is your message to the young people today?
5: Well, two things, you, you diagnose exactly right. Um, I think it's, uh, I'm gonna get fact checked on this, shoot. There's some <laughs> polling company that every year polls America's trust in institutions. There's 15 different institutions and only three in America are above 50%. Uh, police, just barely, the military and small businesses. So journalism, way underwater. Not surprisingly, the White House, way underwater. Congress, way underwater. People don't trust big institutions because we've read so many stories of folks letting them down. Um, Oh, I believed in God, but then I read a story about priests. Oh, I believed in journalists, and then I came on this podcast. You know, stories like that where (laughs) your faith is just fundamentally challenged. But anyway, my message is that something like politics isn't something that people like I own. It's not about mayors or members of Congress or your president or your governor. It's about you. You either exercise the power you have or you cede that to someone else. And every day at the local level, I have this great you know, brotherhood and sisterhood of mayors, both in the United States and globally, who don't have the option to argue about stuff. We have to address global warming because there's fires right next to us. We have to deal with inequality because it's on our street. So don't just leave it up to elected leaders. Get engaged, get involved, and don't cede the power to Washington before you even exercise it.
2: Mr. Mayor, I understand that your administration moved LA's city mail to Gmail, making it the first, I guess, major city to have their email in the cloud. Is that, that true? Yeah. Is, is it also true that you required all city workers to use the same password, which was awesome, mayor12345?
5: Yeah. I mean, it's just the default password. You can change it afterwards, but 92% of them haven't. So I enjoy reading their emails. Now, speaking of you
2: knowing um, so well the data, L.A. was recently acknowledged, I believe, as the best U.S.
5: city at using data to drive governance. Yeah, it's kind of like being the tallest building in Wichita, but we'll, we'll take it. No, no, I, all kidding aside, we're, we're proud of opening up our data and sharing it with journalists and hackers and people who can use this data. <laughs> I mean, the positive sense of hackers yeah. who can come in and do things uh, to empower the city. Can you tell us something that you learned
2: through use of administrative data that yeah. otherwise... You Either the identification
5: of a problem or the idea of a solution that you wouldn't have known? So everybody's watched Chinatown, the great movie, um, how we stole water from Owens Valley. Owens Valley is what, um, who administers? It's it's a number of counties up there uh, that are run by those supervisors. But Los Angeles, the city of Los Angeles, I learned this, our land holdings in Owens Valley are larger than the entire city of L.A. And I realized we need to do something, especially because of the drought, And I found out, here's the statistic, uh, that 260 million gallons of water a day was going from our toilets and our sinks uh, to the Hyperion Water Treatment Plant right next to LAX. And we were cleaning it up to no longer be contaminated and then flushing it out to the ocean. And that was about three times the equivalent of the LA aqueduct. So what William Mulholland had engineered to come to LA, we could essentially quadruple the amount of water uh, in this town uh, from those two sources by simply recycling 100% of that, which we announced two months ago after working on this for a few years, we would do and we will accomplish. But yeah, I mean, if, I, I think literally it was one of those moments where if I hadn't read that number, I don't think I would have made that decision. And I don't think we would have kind of done the biggest infrastructure, changed our water in 100 years.
3: So what were you like when you were, you know... 16 years old. What was your
5: social group? My social group was theater nerds. Um, you were
3: a theater nerd? Yeah.
5: There's 10 of us here, and we, we all Wait, keep in like, touch.
3: Like stage Thanks
5: crew? for coming. No, I was on the stage, and um, I was uh, kind of a budding activist, I would say. I mean, I'm, I was this weird mix that's reflective of this city. I'm your average Angelino. I have an Italian last name. I'm half Mexican, half Jewish. I was really into human rights, and I kind of found my place in those two things, like being in and of the world trying to you know, pursue human rights stuff and um, getting on a stage when you're scared is, I don't know, can we swear here? Sure. Scared as sh- I mean, it's your city. You shouldn't be asking us if you, should. you can swear here. You guys can all
2: swear tonight. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate it. Oh, speaking of favors, um, Luis Guerra, our band leader, apparently has a few parking tickets.
5: Oh, I know. And I thank him for those. Keep on doing it, man. We need that. We need that revenue. More firefighters, you know, longer hours at our library. Keep parking.
2: So let me ask you this. There are roughly half a million uh, Democratic candidates running for president in 2020, (laughs) uh, one of which is not you, Uh, many of which are are, are less prominent than you, however. Um, So why not? And don't, please, if you don't mind, give me the the standard answer about loving your current job and wanting to serve out your term, because we know that
5: that stops no one else. I, I can only speak for myself, but it kind of... Should. Look, in politics, people live so much of their careers, oftentimes in the future, that um, they ignore the present and what they have. And that's not just for politicians, that's all of us, right? We're always like, cool, I got an iPhone 8, like, when's 9 coming out? Uh, It is something that we have to discipline ourselves. And I went through it and I thought I had something, I still would have something to add to it. But it's very difficult to be the CEO of a city. And if you have a conscience kind of not run that city. If a a teacher's strike like we had in January breaks out or an earthquake comes, God forbid, life's long and we'll figure out the future, I would say. So from what I've read, your style of governance seems to
2: be really collaborative as opposed to the kind of command and control or shout and scream that we see in Washington a lot. If you could sort of magically invoke one change in federal government that would produce more collaboration, or at least less outright intransigence,
5: um, what would you do? So in D.C., we kind of have this, you know, repeal and replace mentality. As soon as I can get into government, I'm going to just repeal everything that the last folks did and replace it with my um, philosophy. And we see compromise as some sort of dirty word. And I think that's really toxic. Uh, At the local level, we can't afford to do that you know, we raised the minimum wage here in LA, but we also reduced our city's business tax. Now think about that for a second. If you're a Democrat, you're supposed to raise both of those things. If you're a Republican, you're supposed to lower both of them. But we know putting more money in the pocket of folks who are going to spend it on Main Street is good for the economy, as is lowering a city's business tax that we have based on gross receipts, which is anti-business. So if I could change one thing in Washington, this is totally radical, but I would maybe get rid of political parties altogether. I think our founders envisioned factions, not parties, and it's the most destructive thing we have right now.
2: Yeah, sign me up for that. So let me just ask you, this is an even less palatable idea to most people than yours, but even if the people going in have the best intentions, which I truly believe they often do, they want Mm -hmm. to serve the public good, that once you get into the system, your incentives change that rather than long-termism, which we want for policy, you get involved in a lot of short-termism in terms of consolidating power and getting re-elected. So From an economic perspective, I could see perhaps aligning incentives better by, let's say, rewarding um, elected officials um, financially by setting up some kind of revenue share that pays off
5: over the long term if the projects that they work on actually work out. Here's a way that you could sell that. Instead of talking about redistribution, talk about the idea of pre-distribution. The idea is kind of sovereign wealth funds. So maybe it's not a reward for the politician or the elected official, but for all of us, in which I would have a stake too, that if we are able to do something that has some payoff, we put 20% of that into some public good. But it's not just a check that's kind of after the fact. Say we'd go back to state universities having free tuition, not just something that we figure out afterwards by taking more money from the super wealthy or from corporations, but actually something that's an investment at the front end. So then I would have an incentive Because I do think it's a caricature that people who are elected, you know, get more and more disconnected. I mean, we pursued the Olympics and won the Olympics and Paralympics for 2028. And people are like, oh, well, you don't care about the Olympics. You're not going to even be mayor then if there's cost overruns. And I say, no, I'm going to be worse than a mayor. I'm going to be a taxpayer living here in Los Angeles. Most economists argue that when cities or regions go for a big public event like the Olympics or...
2: Conventions, World Cup, and so on, that usually fiscally it turns out not to be good for the city. I know LA has successfully done the Olympics before. Um obviously you think it can work well here again. Why? Why is LA different? Is it because of the existence of the infrastructure and so
5: on? Uh it's our infrastructure and the way we do the Olympics. So we've had it twice before. 1932 we turned a million dollar profit. In nineteen eighty four, we introduced a whole new model uh, with sponsorship and kind of saved the Olympics. The U.S. Olympic Committee was broke, and we made hundreds of millions of dollars. It's the infrastructure, and people do things like build a new railway to Sochi. Well, that's not like the Olympics. That was a 50 billion or whatever it was dollar railway that people put into the Olympics as if that's the inherent right. cost of it. It's the Olympics. a boondoggle, and so, you're getting your boondoggles in early now so that they can't. <laughs> no, be better, better than that. We we delayed till 2028. Let Paris go first in 2024. And we negotiated $160 million up front. So $16 million a year has been going into doubling the number of kids who get swim classes. When African-American, Latino kids, um, over half of them don't know how to swim. And it's the second leading accidental killer of kids uh, under 12. So, you know, we, we are putting into public good now. And the main reasons why L.A. can get away with it and other places are right to avoid it is we're not building an Olympic village. We're using UCLA. So we're just renting those rooms. <laughs> we've got... All the infrastructure, the most expensive stadium in human history has been built without public subsidy in Inglewood here for the Rams and the Chargers. We're going to use that. We have the Coliseum. We have the Staples Center. So we're just renting the incredible sports facilities we already have here. We have a velodrome. We've got tennis courts. So most other cities are smart to not bid, but we hope to get the Olympics to kind of chill out on needing to build so many new things. Mm. So the
2: moral of the story is the Olympics should only be held in Los Angeles. Correct. Uh, There's one question I want to ask you, and we ask this to a lot of substantial people. What's something that you believed um, for a long time to be true until you found out that you were wrong?
5: Well, I I mentioned it a bit already. I think that I I was one of those Democrats who always thought you can never lower taxes. And I think that I've seen in practice that businesses do make their decisions based on where where taxes are. That's definitely one. Um, I think the other thing, I used to think you could dismiss people's fears and that, that, let's say in a town hall meeting where people don't want a homeless shelter in their neighborhood, that it was OK to just say you're wrong or that somebody's racist about something or this, that and the other. And I realized over time you have to kind of um, understand people's fears that they usually come from a real place. And until you understand that, you can't transform it.
2: Mike Mon, the mayor, told us a lot of things about Los Angeles. Any facts we need to uh, be concerned with?
4: So a, a couple of things that are interesting. He was rated one of the top five most dateable mayors in America, <laughs> despite the fact that he's married to the incredible yeah, Amy Wakefield Thank you.
5: I was going to say, I'm not dateable at all. <laughs> I did want to
4: say one, one thing about diversity, which was interesting. Uh, there is a, a large study that just came out that ranks... L.A. itself, not Greater Los Angeles, is the 63rd most diverse city in terms of racial and ethnic diversity. It moves up to the 8th most diverse city when you take into account income, education, language, industry, class, age, religion, etc. The most interesting thing I think you talked about was how hometown buffets also have diversity. Mm. You'll be interested to know that in Canada, some buffets offer jellied moose nose. In Japan, you can get tuna eyeballs. But most impressive was a man in Springfield, Massachusetts, who ate all the diversity and was kicked out of a buffet after spending more than seven hours on site eating more than 50 pounds of food.
5: Oh my God.
4: So it is possible to get all the diversity at once.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Mike Mullen, and thanks especially to Mayor Eric Garcetti of Los Angeles. Thank you, all. Thank you LA. Our next guest is a seismologist at Caltech, and she's a leading authority on earthquake risk. Would you please welcome Lucy Jones? Okay, Lucy, uh, it was so interesting to me that um, people clapped uh, for earthquakes. (laughs) Um, So uh, uh, tell us something uh, we don't know about earthquakes. Let's start there.
1: I think most people think of California as a place with a lot of earthquakes. Uh, The reality is we don't have enough. Now, maybe that's only something a seismologist is going to say, but uh, we can look at the geology and see how many we should have. And especially the last couple of decades have been particularly quiet. We call it an earthquake drought. Uh, And the, the only downside of it is it leads to complacency. People think... That this is what we have to be ready for, and we need to remember that in the long run we get more.
2: Very interesting. So for 20 years, that time scale is probably just not significant when you're thinking earthquakes, yes?
1: On the larger ones, that's right. And actually, if you want to see some really interesting debates, watch geologists try to do statistics. A lot of us... Uh, struggle on how to do it correctly, and we argue over it, but uh, if you go to small enough earthquakes, then you have a lot of them, and it's statistically significant that the last 20 years is quite a bit quieter than the previous uh, century. So,
2: quick two-part question. I want you to tell us about earthquake prediction and how it's changed over um, recent decades And then related to that, uh, what can you tell us about the probability of a big, bad earthquake, let's say in California, in the next, let's say, 10, 20, and 50 years?
1: Okay. I'll start with the last one and just say the big earthquake on the San Andreas, 7.88, something like that, is absolutely inevitable. Just give me enough time.
2: Enough time, we're talking decades, centuries, what?
1: Well, all right, so we average 150 years. Can I just say, you
2: sound a little too excited about the probability (laughs)
1: I don't get to create my own experiments. I have to wait for what the Earth is gonna give me. And, uh, you know, I came in here in my first decade, we had a lot of earthquakes, we had Whittier Narrows, we had Northridge, we had Loma Prieta, and then for the next 25 years, at the end of my career, boom, nothing, right? (laughs) Uh, I miss them, but I realize that not everybody else does. (laughs) The problem is, is that the pattern really is random. I can give you a rate I can do the earthquake climate, if you will, but what we don't have is the particular storm. You know, when the rain's coming in tonight and my iPhone says there's a 50% chance of rain starting at 11 o'clock, that's because they can measure the, the uh, clouds coming in. There's nothing that has to come in for the earthquake to happen. Or if there is, it happens for every earthquake. And there's, there's an average of an earthquake once every three minutes in Southern California.
3: So what do you mean that it's random? Do you you really
1: mean that it's random? Yeah. Statistically, as far as we can tell, it really is random. Now you think, okay, we're building up the stress on the fault. The earthquake should happen when the stress is built up. The problem is, is that the earthquakes actually happen at stresses much smaller than the breaking strength of the fault. And it's like, if it goes unstable... Then we go into a different mode, and dynamic friction is much weaker than static friction. And so the timing is controlled by when you happen to get a little break just somewhere on the fault and it goes unstable. We aren't actually building up to the full strength of the fault. So,
3: does that mean there will never be a time where we can really predict the earthquake?
1: I believe we will never predict earthquakes. Mm-hmm. Now, notice my qualifier. I'm a scientist, I don't say absolutes. The fundamental is. Do magnitude 1s and magnitude 7s begin in exactly the same way? If they do, there's nothing to predict. You don't want me to predict the 1s. And as far as we can tell at this point, the 1s and the 7s start the same way. I know you're
2: excited for the next big earthquake because uh, it'll keep you busy, which is not a bad reason to want an earthquake. But most people, I would say, would probably rather not have a big earthquake um, for obvious reasons, loss of life and damage and on and on and on and on. So... um, Let's talk a little bit about, I guess, what you'd call earthquake risk management, right? Tell us one smart thing and one dumb thing that California has done to manage earthquake risk.
1: So, um, the really smart thing that Mayor Garcetti did is listen to me. (laughs) He... uh, He invited me to City Hall. We had a long discussion. We ended up creating a cooperative project where the U.S. Geological Survey, who was my employer at the time, put me in City Hall, and together we created a resilience plan. The two biggest things, generally, we know which are the bad buildings that are going to fall down, and we have mandated... Repairs. The uh, owners have to spend the money to fix those buildings so they don't kill people. And what kind of money
2: are we talking about for that? Billions. Retrofitting. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's about 15,000 buildings involved.
2: And it's paid by the the owners, right?
1: And if it's a rent-controlled apartment, then it's split 50-50 with the tenants but they're not allowed to put the whole cost onto the tenants. The concrete or a commercial building, the owner pays for it, and he can change his rent as needed, or he can choose to tear it down. Can I ask, you said that the seven is inevitable? Like
3: the, Absolutely. Like
1: Superman, the first movie? like the, the is, I mean, what does this look oh, I, like? I actually watched that movie with a class of geologists. We got thrown out of the theater. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, we can look at the geology, and Los Angeles is moving to San Francisco. In just 5 million years, we will be a suburb of San Francisco, right? And that is inevitable, and it's not going to be stopped. Plate tectonics goes on. The question is, are we going to take the next step in it tonight, or next year, or 50 years from now? And these policies that are, you know,
3: building the right infrastructures, do these apply to 7-level earthquakes?
1: Absolutely. We do pretty well in a magnitude 6 right? We have had sixes that don't kill people. Um, So we are gradually building it up. I mean, it's all a relative thing. Um, We absolutely could have a city resilient to it. We can't stop all damage. We could do a better job with our water system. You know, all that, that Los Angeles aqueduct he was talking about, it crosses the San Andreas Fault in a wooden tunnel built in 1908, And the tunnel is nine feet in diameter, and the expected fault offset will be 12 feet, so it won't exist after the earthquake.
2: Okay, Mr. Awesome Mayor, what have you done about that?
1: (laughs) Um, They are planning the engineering solution now. Shit!
2: (laughs) Um, How much greater is the risk of dying in an earthquake in California versus, let's say, New York?
1: Um, Not much. We have a lot more earthquakes, but you have a lot worse buildings. There was a study that said what's the expected money to be lost in the different urban areas. Los Angeles is number one, San Francisco is number two, Seattle's number three, and New York is number four.
2: Um, I understand that earthquake insurance is not required in California and that roughly just 15% of property right. owners have it. Um, should it be required?
1: Uh, that, that's a different policy question than science, but... Um, It is going to hurt our economy very badly. You can look at what happened to San Francisco in 1906. It was the only city that mattered on the West Coast in 1905. That earthquake happened and essentially destroyed the whole city. The next decade is the biggest growth decade in the history of Los Angeles. People gave up on San Francisco and came south. Their economy went down for decades. And you can argue that San Francisco never regained its position...
2: Mike Mon, uh, Lucy Jones says the big one is coming, and she can't wait. Um, <laughs> is there? Um, did you turn up any facts that are worth uh, revisiting?
4: There is, in theory, this sliver of land between the fault and the ocean where the, that will break off, and then L.A. would slide past San Francisco. So that's a, a real thing. I, I'd bet on that. In
1: five billion years.
4: Yeah. Okay. Well, sure. Right. But what's time? <laughs> Um, On a a positive note, earthquakes are the only natural disaster not affected by climate change. Lucky us. A few things to add. We we are in this earthquake drought. We're also in a drought of of moral leadership, human intelligence, and good Nicolas Cage movies.
2: Uh, Mike, thank you, and Lucy Jones, thank you so much for being on our show tonight. was great. It is time now for a quick break. If you'd like to attend a future taping of Free Economics Radio Live, visit slash live We do have upcoming shows in Philadelphia, London, and Chicago. We will be right back. Free Economics Radio is sponsored by Amica Insurance. Amica Insurance is all about empathy. They know your auto, home, and life insurance are more than just policies. Home insurance is about protecting the life you've built. Auto insurance is there to protect you on the road ahead. That's why Amica takes a consultative approach to help protect what matters most to you. They are a customer-owned insurance company that puts your needs first, and their representatives are available 24-7 for claim-related matters. As Amica says, empathy is our best policy.
0: Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at AmericanExpress.com slash Business Gold
2: Freakonomics Radio is sponsored by Cars.com. Have you heard about the Your Garage feature on Cars.com? I'm Stephen Dubner. My co-host is Angela Duckworth. Our live fact-checker is Mike Maughan, and we've got live music tonight from the Economics Radio Orchestra, which includes composer and bassist Luis Guerra. On drums, Mike Longoria. On guitar, Jimmy Messer. On horns and strings, Dan Weinstein. And on keys and good vibes, Khalil Sabah. Would you please welcome now our next guest. He is executive director of the Port of Los Angeles, Gene Saroka. Gene, I understand the Port of L.A. is the biggest container port in the U.S., bringing in 37% of imports. Is that about right, for starters?
6: Combined with Long Beach, we bring in 37%, but we account for about uh, a fifth of all the traffic that moves in the United States today. Wow.
2: Okay. So I'd love you to tell us something we don't know about the Port of L.A. and us being neither port people nor L.A. people. That could be pretty much anything. One of our biggest exports is air. Air. (laughs) Empty containers.
6: Oh, is this about China? We're pretty dependent as a nation on imports. So we've got a balance of about two imports to every one export. And the balance of those containers, we work around the clock to get back to Asia
2: so they can get the next round of imports. So this is uh, containers deadheading their way back to China to fill up to send us more data. That's exactly it. Gotcha. Okay. So... What are the mechanics, let's say, in logistics and costs of shipping full stuff versus air?
6: Well, if you're shipping a lot of air, you're losing money. So you want to make sure you have round-trip economics, bringing imports in and exports out. And even if you have to overreach and get a little more market share in, a, in an area that you may not have the relative strength in.
2: I am curious about the empty versus full ships. How has that ratio changed over the last, whatever, five or 10
6: years? It's remained pretty consistent. We as a country have outsourced our manufacturing since the late 70s, early 80s. And us as consumers want to go find the product as quickly as we can. And we're going to keep doing that because the price points are so great. But what we've seen is that right now, the largest export from the United States
2: to Asia is waste paper. I thought that was changing, that that China is accepting much less waste from us for recycling. Yeah, the green fence policy.
6: This predated all the debates that are happening between Washington and Beijing today. But the idea is exactly as you said, Stephen, to try to clean up the waste products that we ship back to China. Now, waste paper goes back, gets refined, and it makes those corrugated boxes that ship our TVs and our washing machines back here to the U.S.
2: Big question. Um, We're kind of in the middle, maybe, of a historic confrontation between the U.S. and China on trade and tariffs. I'm curious to know how this whole political chapter has been affecting business at the port.
6: The numbers at the port today are at record highs. You look under the hood, it's a little bit different recently. We've seen a lot of imports advanced to get underneath the tariffs or taxation. And we've seen a paucity of exports, or really a precipitous drop of exports, because the retaliatory tariffs, And the fact that those goods aren't as marketable as they have been in the
2: past. A drop in the exports because they don't want the stuff to get there with the uncertainty of knowing what the retaliatory tariffs will be or just because it's already taken effect here?
6: A little bit of both.
2: Yeah. When things are going on in D.C. or Beijing, when there's disagreements and so on, your logistics must run on a very, very, very long time frame. And I'm curious to know when the butterfly flaps its wings in one of those places, how long it takes to get to you?
6: Yeah. Realistically speaking, it takes about six months of thought that goes into bringing cargo back here to Los Angeles. So there's a merchandiser somewhere with a big retailer in the Midwest that says, I want to buy 20 million widgets. They put an order into a factory. Those goods are manufactured. They're put into the supply chain and moved all the way through and get here to LA. So when you and I decide that we want to go online and buy something and get next day delivery, All of that has taken about six months of thought
2: beforehand. I understand that the port caught more than um, 1,500 kilos of meth that was being smuggled to Australia. So my first question is, isn't meth really easy to make? And shouldn't Australians be able to make their own? Was that question not in your purview as a uh, No, port?
6: no, I wouldn't claim to be an expert there.
2: Okay, well, let's, let's talk about um, contraband generally. I'm curious about port security. So tell us what you're willing to about people doing what they shouldn't be doing uh, with your ships coming in or out.
6: Yeah, port security is one of the biggest aspects of what we do on a daily basis. We have one of the nation's only sworn in civilian police forces. They work directly with all the allied agencies and imagine from the FBI to the CIA Secret Service, all kinds of folks to share intelligence and try to stop the bad guys. There could be anything from getting into our systems to find out where our money is flowing, how bank accounts are used both here and overseas, to get ships to move in the wrong direction and cause havoc, all of the above and much more. And who's doing that?
2: Bad guys. Mike Mon, uh Gene Soroka, who runs the, the port of L.A. America's port, Stephen. Oh, America's port. <laughs> Gene Soroka's been telling us about the ins and outs of the port. Anything worth calling our attention to? So
4: you mentioned that in January, the port caught a lot of meth that was being smuggled to Australia. The drugs were hidden in metal boxes labeled as loudspeakers. Now, to Stephen's point, making meth apparently isn't that hard. Um, Don't worry, I opened an incognito browser to look at this. (laughs) There are four primary ways to make meth in the U.S., but they have a totally different method that the Mexican cartels use, so it all depends on the flavor you like. Last month, a large Australian newspaper ran a headline that says, Meth remains our country's illicit drug of choice. Exclamation point. They're very thrilled about it. So there you have it. Gene Soroka, thank
2: you so much for joining us tonight. It is time now uh, for our final guest. She works at the Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena. um, And she is specifically with a NASA division called Planetary Protection. Would you please welcome Mujige Stricker. Mujige, welcome. Thank you. It would seem that your division, planetary protection, uh, has something to do with uh, fighting off, let's say, potential asteroid strikes that would devastate the Earth. Is that true?
0: Ah, That is the actual number one thing that people usually think, but it is wrong. Uh (laughs) So what I do is I focus on the microbial scale and protecting other planets from humans making sure when we explore other planets, bodies, uh, asteroids, that we don't contaminate it with life that we find on Earth, especially if there may be life that exists there.
2: It is so interesting that we're more concerned about polluting other planets than ours.
0: (laughs) Did we do anything wrong with the previous moon landings? You know, The astronauts, when they came back from the moon, they splashed down in the ocean, and if there was something on the outside of the container that really could harm humans we would have been dead right there at Splashdown.
3: But what do you do, though? Like, you can't go through a car wash on your way back down from space.
0: What you need to do when you bring something back, humans back or samples back, you need to do a lot of great creative engineering to have capsules within capsules or a sterilization device so that you can prevent anything bad uh, to come back to Earth.
2: So is this mostly about Mars 2020, what you're working on? So
0: my my job is specifically focused on Mars. Mars 2020 is going to go to the surface of Mars, collect samples, and for the very first time, package them in a way that they can come back to Earth. We've never had a sample return mission from Mars. Okay,
2: so let me ask you this. You don't sound like a very excited person, I have to say, (laughs) but um, what would really, really super-duper excite you <laughs> about Mars and getting stuff back.
0: Yeah, the, the most exciting and ultimate goal is, you know, we're searching for life. And to be able to find signs of life and actually definitively find a smoking gun, that would be just an exciting dream come true because it would answer the big question, are we alone in the universe?
2: So what do you actually do in your job? Uh,
0: so a day in my life would be uh, sitting in a, a very small room with a bunch of engineers, scientists, scientists, and say, okay, we're going to plug in the face of the rover onto the body of the rover. And before we do that, planetary protection, do you need to sample the hardware? So we would go in with our sterile swabs, our wipes, and we would actually scrub or swab uh, the the actual surface and go to the lab and see what microbes are present on this component.
2: What do you think about the microbes that you may encounter elsewhere? And what are the either dangers or potentially benefits of those.
0: So uh, part two of my job, uh, planetary protection, uh, is when we bring samples back, we have to make sure that it doesn't harm humans. So how do you do that? How can you tell? So one method that was actually done is uh, for the moon rocks is feeding it to chickens. (laughs) I'm not sure why they selected chickens, but it's just one of those tests. How do you prove that you're not going to kill anybody?
3: So I imagine that this is, uh, you know, such a specific, specific career that not a lot of girls and boys think that they're going to grow up to be part of the planetary protection lead for Mars. So,
0: you know, how'd you end up here? I actually didn't know planetary protection existed until I was working on my PhD. Uh, So I was working on plasma sterilization and they had a project that used plasma to sterilize spacecraft surfaces because it's really tough. You can imagine when you're innovating these new materials and new spacecraft, a lot of these aren't uh, capable of going through high-temperature heat sterilization processes. So they need other alternative methods. Plasma was one of those alternatives. So as an undergrad, I studied physics. And before that, I was just a little kid that watched Carl Sagan's The Cosmos. And so that really put me on the trajectory of, I want to be an astrophysicist. This is what I want to do. And instead of playing in the summertime, I would take classes. Um, started college at 16, and I was like, this, this is... This is what I want to do. So get out of my way.
2: (laughs) So can I ask you, though, um, just to be clear, there are some people at NASA who are protecting us from the asteroids? Yes.
0: Don't worry. They exist. They're doing their things, you know. (laughs) Can
2: you give me some detail on that when you say they're doing their things? And also, you're called planetary protection, which I find to be a very misleading title. I'm not going to lie to you. So what what are they called?
0: They're called planetary defense. Yeah, yeah. All right. because they're yeah. defending against the asteroids, the the impacts.
2: So let me ask you this: when you find microbes, mm-hmm. uh, whether in your lab or maybe somewhere where a spacecraft is being assembled, whatever. Yep. And you try to identify the microbes. Do you ever find something that hadn't been previously identified?
0: Yeah, uh, it's really great. So the old school days, you know, back when planetary protection started, it was very culture-based. That means we would take a sample, we would grow it up in the lab, and based on whatever grew, we would identify it. And now that we've fast-forwarded to DNA-based analysis, we've seen so much more. Um, If you look at the soil, 0.1% of microbes in the soil are even able to be grown in a lab. So it's just a tiny sliver what exists. Um, so yeah, we discover so many new things. There are actually hundreds of new species that were discovered just in our assessment in the spacecraft assembly facility. No and kidding. Hundred, over a hundred. And then 100.
2: once you make that discovery, do you try to find it elsewhere on the Earth?
0: Yeah, that's the beauty of DNA sequencing and databases that are accessible worldwide. Uh, there was one microorganism we found in our clean room um, and the same type... Popped up in uh, some lake or ca- uh, cave in China. So we're kind of 23 and me, all of the bacteria that
2: exists around the world. And what does linking that information actually get you? How, how does it advance the science, or what does that enable you to do that otherwise wouldn't have been possible?
0: So, for example, a lot of the medical devices industry, the, when, if you go in and you get a colonoscopy or an endoscopy, right, and you, you want to make sure that they clean it off and everything is kept nice, right, uh, we discovered that in the process of sterilizing these devices, they use something called a biological indicator. This is the hardiest, strongest champion of microbes that if we kill that, we've killed everything else. Right? And so this biological indicator has changed over time because we've discovered these new microbes. And in our clean room, we've discovered a microbe that knocked off that biological indicator, that gold standard.
2: So I've read that you once appeared on a reality TV show called King of the Nerds. This is true?
0: You have really great researchers. Right.
2: And, uh, and we've also read that um, part of the competition was to compose and perform a nerd anthem, yes. and that your anthem was called Nerds Are King. Is this all true? Yes. So I believe that um, our band has found Nerds Are King <laughs> online, and they They're willing to back you up if you're willing to sing it. You good with that?
0: (laughs) That sounds great.
2: Mike Mon, fact check that. <laughs> that was good.
4: <laughs> okay, so I think the most interesting thing I found was just the way to apply for a job in planetary <laughs> protection. Under job qualification, it lists the following things frequent travel, doesn't mention that it's to Jupiter and Saturn. Um, there are only three technical qualifications that you need one is advanced knowledge of planetary protection. Two, demonstrated experience planning, executing, and overseeing elements of space programs of national significance. <laughs> Three, demonstrated skills in diplomacy. Probably because you never know when you have to negotiate with aliens. Thank you so much, Mujigay Stricker. That was just great.
2: Thank you. And uh, could we please have one more round of applause for all our guests tonight? It is time now for our live audience to tell us who their favorite guest was tonight. Maybe it's the guest that you would most like to hear from in a future studio episode of Freakonomics Radio. Let's remember the criteria. Did they tell you something you did not know? Was it truly worth knowing, and was it demonstrably true? So who's it going to be? Eric Garcetti, the mayor of Los Angeles? Lucy Jones, who both calmed and frightened us with her earthquake expertise? Jean Soroka, who runs the port of LA, America's port? Or Mujigay Stricker, who helps protect various planets from various microbes and also composes anthems to nerds? While our live audience is voting, let me remind our listening audience that the entire archive of Freakonomics Radio can be found on the Stitcher app or at Freakonomics.com. Okay, the audience vote is in. Once again, thank you so much to all our guest presenters and our grand prize winner tonight for telling us about planetary protection. Mujigay Stricker, congratulations. Mujige, to commemorate your victory, we'd like to present you with this certificate of impressive knowledge. It reads, I, Stephen Dubner, in consultation with the great Angela Duckworth and Mike Maughan do hereby attest that Mujigay Stricker told us something we did not know for which we are so grateful. And that's our show for tonight. I hope we told you something you didn't know. Huge thanks to Mike and Angela, to our guests, to Luis Garrett and the great Freakonomics Radio Orchestra. Thanks especially to all of you for listening this week and every week to Freakonomics Radio. Good night. Coming up next time on Freakonomics Radio, we head north to San Francisco, where we hear from the president and co-founder of Lyft, Also, an engineer who's looking 10,000 years into the future, a hydrologist who's been mapping the world's water supply, and a microbiologist who's been working on a new form of birth control.
1: So sperm will never get into that crazy motility mode. And they just keep swimming. They have no idea that they are so close and so far away.
2: It's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Freakonomics Radio is produced by Stitcher and Dubner Productions. This episode was produced by Allison Craiglow, Morgan Levy, Greg Rippon, Harry Huggins, Zach Lipinski, Corinne Wallace, and Dan Zula. We left Matt Hickey behind in New York to hold down the fort. Special thanks to Andrea Johnson and KCRW for their partnership on the show. Also to the historic and wonderful Ace Hotel Theater. Our theme song, Mr. Fortune, was originally recorded by the Hitchhikers. It was performed here by Luis Guerra and the Freakonomics Radio Orchestra. All other music was composed by Luis. You can subscribe to Freakonomics Radio on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The entire archive is available on the Stitcher app or at Freakonomics.com, where we also publish transcripts and show notes. If you want to hear the entire archive ad-free, plus lots of bonus episodes, go to stitcherpremium.com slash Freakonomics. We also publish every week on Medium, a short text version of our new episode. Go to medium.com slash Freakonomics Radio. We can also be found on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, or via email at radio at Freakonomics.com. Freakonomics Radio also plays on many NPR stations, so check your local station for details. Thanks for listening.
3: So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just
0: $30. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... <laughs> I have a charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello. Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed.
2: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken
4: sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal
1: if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.